Well, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3. And we will consider today the first eight verses of this chapter. If you were not here last week, or if you were here and didn't get a chance to pick up uh, the printed copy of the booklet we've put out as a session, Roebuck Presbyterian Church Beliefs in Mission. I would encourage you to get one of these and take it home uh, with you and, and give it a look at, at some point this week. The goal of the booklet is to simply answer the question, what is our church all about? What do you believe and what are you trying to do? And even if you've been here all your life or for many years, you may still find this helpful as in the sense of giving you an idea of what your session is thinking about and praying about and trying to do as a church, as well as a reminder of what we're trying to preach and put before you. And of course, if you're new, then then get a copy and read through it uh, and become more familiar and and let us know whatever questions you may have. But Romans chapter 3, and let me read from verses 1 through 8. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. Father in heaven, once again, we call on your name to be our help. Here in your word, may we find your presence and may it transform us. May it bring us into the very presence of God himself, as we've already been enjoying that this morning. And may the power of your word so work faith and obedience in us, and may Christ be glorious, and may you be glorified. And we give you our thanks already. We just thank you for your word, and we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Has the story failed? That's the question that some readers of Romans may ask, as they reach the end of Romans 2. After all, Paul concludes that chapter, what we saw last week in the preaching time. Paul concludes by arguing, circumcision unaccompanied by obedience invalidates the benefits of circumcision. And, more shockingly, those who are not circumcised physically may be regarded as God's people as Jews, so to speak, if their hearts are circumcised spiritually and they show it by obeying God. Paul ends the chapter by completely redefining what it means to belong to the people of God. 
And that might leave someone asking, well, what was the point of God choosing Israel in the first place? If you can get the blessings without going in the normal way, well, why did God choose them at all? Have God purp- has God's purposes for Israel failed? And as we said last week, one of Israel's jobs was to be God's covenant people and therefore to be the light of the world. Galatians 3.8 tells us, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. John 3.16, the well-known verse, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. I heard a preacher once make the joke, God so loved the world that He gave us Abraham. Through Abraham, God's salvation to the world would come. That was God's plan all along. That's how blessing gets to the world. And God tells Isaiah, through Isaiah, God tells Israel, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. That's Israel's job. I know it's easy to read the Old Testament and think, well, it was so long ago and there Israel, they're just living in a small portion of the world. I mean, how would the news even get out? Well, God said, you'll be my kingdom of priests. You'll mediate my presence to the world. That's why God called Jonah. And that's why Jonah expected his mission to succeed. That's what he didn't like. But he knew what God was all about. But the problem, the problem with Jonah, and in Paul's day, the problem with Israel, is that they are not fulfilling their duties. They are not doing their job. They're not obeying the law that God gave them. They're not a holy nation. There's an ethical failure there. And then along with that, maybe even because of that, there is the vocational failure, the job failure. They're not being the light to the nations. They're not being the guide for the blind, the light for those who are in the dark, the verses we saw last week. Instead of Israel being a blessing to the world, instead God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. And so you might wonder, especially if you were an Israelite, but maybe a Gentile too, either sympathetic to Israel or maybe a little proud. Hey, look, they're missing out. We're enjoying these blessings. You might wonder, has the story failed? Is God's purpose for the world going to fail? Uh, Thinking of that question brought to my mind the end of the first Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo and Sam, they go off on their own. And Mary and Pippin, they've been kidnapped. Boromir has been killed. This mission, it looks like it's falling apart. And that's what Gimli states. Then it has all been in vain. The fellowship has failed. But Aragorn, as a good leader, he resolves, will pursue Mary and Pippin. And he hopes, quote, maybe a right choice will change the evil fate of this unhappy day. Maybe in the end, some good will come out of bad and maybe even turn this whole thing around. Well, that's what today's passage is actually all about. It shows us how God, by his grace, changes the evil fate of his disobedient people and how God's faithfulness in the end 
triumphs. Now, I'll grant you, when you first read this passage, or you first read through these verses, it may almost seem to be a digression, doesn't it? As if Paul has to pause and say, okay, let me deal with some of these objections you may have. Maybe you're wondering a few things based on what I've seen. Let me pause and answer those questions. And certainly Paul does that. He answers questions. But I think when we first read the passage, we might think, this is just some abstract discussion. I mean, if we were pressed for time, we could just skip this passage and get on to the good stuff in verses 9 and following. But this is not an abstract discussion. This is not a mere pause. When Paul answers these questions, he advances the story. And he points ahead to the gospel solution. The way God solves the problem of Israel and our unfaithfulness. And so let's give our full attention today to this passage. Because it shows us how God's faithfulness in the gospel triumphs over our unfaithfulness. And as we go through the text, we'll see four ways God shows his faithfulness in the gospel. And again, we put this outline on the back of the bulletin. So some of these statements are a little longer, but there in the bottom of the announcements, you have the full sentences for your help if you like to take notes. How does God's faithfulness triumph over our unfaithfulness? Well, first, because God is faithful to maintain his gospel community, to preserve his people. God is faithful. The first question Paul raises is stated there in verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And again, that is an understandable reaction to how Paul concluded chapter 2. He relativized the position of Jews and Gentiles before God's judgment. Being Jewish does not automatically shield you from the judgment of God. However, from the perspective of how God works in history, how God brings about his saving purposes, well, there the Jews occupy a privileged position. Therefore, Paul answers in verse 2. What's the advantage? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, I think we'd all, of course, agree with that statement, but I don't want to undersell what Paul is saying. It may sound like he's saying the Jews have the Bible, and that's a treasured possession. And absolutely, that's true. But Paul means much more than that. Possessing the Bible is more than just having a cultural or a religious heritage. For the Jews to possess God's words means that they possess God's covenant. They are in line with his saving purposes in the world. Saving purposes that go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God promises, and this is right after Adam and Eve sin, and when he comes and finds them, these are some of his first words. And I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the first promise of the gospel. 
And many of the chapters in Genesis trace how that gospel promise creates a gospel community, a community that comes to expression in Israel. It really is worth summarizing. This is just a summary. Think what you know of Genesis. And follow me here. When Cain kills Abel, God gives Seth to Adam and Eve. And from Seth comes a line of godly descendants that lead to Noah. That's one of the reasons we have all those genealogies there in the opening chapters of Genesis. A godly line culminates in a godly person whom God then saves, rescues from the flood that destroys the world. Well, Noah then has children, and those descendants rebel at the Tower of Babel. So God scatters them. But God then pursues the line of Seth, one of Noah's kids. And from Seth comes Abraham, with whom God covenants to bless the world. And when Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, God rescues them at the Exodus and brings them to Mount Sinai, where he enters into a covenant with them. So you can see God is just furthering his gracious purposes, his gracious covenant in the midst of the world. And if you were a Jew, if you were born into that covenant community, that carried enormous privileges. You had the front row seat. What is God doing in the world? You could sit in the front row and watch and see. Whenever it was time for God to dispense blessings, you were first in line for what God was doing. And even when Israel disobeyed and God brought on them the exile, still God rescued them and he preserved them. Think of all those stories at the end of the Old Testament where they're trying to build the city and build the walls and no one will let them. And God says, I will preserve my people. So one day Messiah Jesus can ride through that city and through those walls humbly on a donkey. God preserves his people. We see it in the Bible. We see it in our own day. The fact that we are still here as a church 2,000 years later, that is God preserving his people. Preserving his presence in this world. There's somewhere you can go and find the special presence of God with God's people and hear God's truth and worship him. And that's not because we've always got it right. The church has sinned in its past. It's failed in its long history. But God has preserved it and worked savingly in the world through his people. And that is a testimony to God's faithfulness. Faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. So let's look at the second way God shows his faithfulness by being faithful to fulfill his gospel promises. Gospel community, gospel promises. Let's go back to the story about Israel. As we've said, what do we do now that the story seems to have gotten stuck? God is doing all these great things. And yet his people keep disobeying them. Does that handcuff God? Does that mean that he cannot or perhaps will not fulfill his promises? I like how one author put it. He says, if the person responsible for delivering the mail has proved untrustworthy, how can I keep my promise to send you a letter 
through that same mail system? Well, that's the question Paul is asking here in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Now, again, this is where we come to this passage and say, you know what? This is not just a general discussion about human unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. Because of what Paul says in verse 2, that Israel possesses God's words, that puts a little more specificity on verse 3. And we could read it like this. What if some were unfaithful to God's covenant obligations? Will that unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness to his covenant promises? That's the question. And as Paul has already charged, the Jews, for the most part, they have not obeyed God. And they have not brought God's good news to the world. And we might wonder, how then will God be faithful? How will he keep his promises? Should we view it all conditionally? Hey, They didn't hold up their end of the bargain, and so God is under no obligation to hold up his. Not at all. That's how Paul answers in verse 4. Not at all. Let God be true, and every human being a liar. In fact, this is one of those places where the old King James reads, God forbid. And while that's not literally what the original language says, Paul uses a phrase that means not possible. In other words, God is ruling this out as a possibility. Let God be true and every human being a liar. So you, you see, the nature of God is that he is true. He tells the truth, and even more than that, he's reliable, he's firm, he's trustworthy, true to his word and promises. And that will be true even if everyone else is found to be a liar. And there's a price to pay, of course, for for being a hypocrite or making others stumble. Jesus said that. But no matter what, God will be true even if everyone else is found to be unfaithful. And because God is true, he makes promises. He doesn't have to make them to stir up his own will. He makes them for our benefit. To confirm to us that he is trustworthy. And it is just that absolute certainty in who God is that Paul can say what he says here. God made promises and God intends to keep them. Now, what Paul doesn't do in this passage is tell us how God fulfills His gospel promises. He's going to save that for later in the chapter. But despite the fact that he doesn't tell us directly here what the solution is, I think he intends for us to reason our way, think our way towards the proper conclusion. Here's what I mean. Here's how one author puts it. Paul has set up the problem in such a way that we can see in principle what is now required. And here's what's required. If the covenant God is going to bless the world through Israel, and Israel is unfaithful, what does God need? A faithful Israelite. And that is what Paul will show 
when he gets to the end of the chapter, that a faithful Israelite is exactly what God has now provided. In fact, I've got to read you that verse. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You know, what the law couldn't do because of sin, God has now done in his son. And it doesn't mean he says, oh yeah, that law, that was plan A, let's go on to plan B. No, hey, the law and the prophets said this was how it would be. But what they couldn't do, God has done. Later in Romans 5, Paul states, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Adam failed and were guilty. Christ obeyed and were righteous. And last one, Romans 10.4, and I like the NLT here. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. God has faithfully fulfilled his gospel promises, and he has done it through the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ. And so when you wonder if God will be faithful to you, and you wonder if he'll be faithful to his church, and if you wonder if he'll be faithful to his promises, consider Jesus Christ. That is the point Paul makes in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If God has given you Christ, he's done the big thing, he's done the hard job. Everything that remains is easy. And it was when you were without strength, you might say, I know better now. should do better now, I know better. It was when you were without strength. It was when you were still a sinner that Christ died for you. If the big thing happens while you're a sinner, how much more then will God be gracious when you are his child? We are unfaithful. It is our nature. We do it by choice. We do it by habit. We do it by fill in the blank. But it is in the face of unfaithfulness that God provides the faithfulness of his son. God's faithfulness triumphs over our unfaithfulness. So let's look at these last two ideas. Third, God is faithful to inflict his gospel judgment. Now that may seem like an abrupt left turn, doesn't it? Oh man, we've just been focusing on God's faithfulness. And now we're going to talk about judgment. Well, Paul in this passage, he does have a, a dual purpose in mind. On one hand, he wants to highlight Israel's unfaithfulness to push us to think about the solution in Jesus' faithfulness. But at the same time, Paul will finish making the point he developed in chapter 2. That Jews, along with Gentiles, stand condemned 
before God's judgment. And God's faithfulness to his covenant includes faithfulness in judgment. And here's how we know that. Look at the text that Paul cites at the end of verse 4. In order to support the statement, let God be true, and every human being a liar, Paul writes, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now that citation is taken from Psalm 51, 4. Do you know Psalm 51? That is where David confesses his sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba. Here's the full verse. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. The point of David's statement is he confesses his sin So that everyone knows God is righteous when he judges David. David isn't being punished unfairly. God is righteous. David sinned. And so he says, I confess that so that everyone will know, God, you are right when you judge. Now that's an interesting citation here, isn't it? I mean, the whole context has been about God's faithfulness to his gospel. Despite our unfaithfulness. But Paul cites this in order to bring out both sides of the equation. God is faithful in his promise to save, but he is faithful in his promise to judge. And this covenant that God made with Israel, the covenant that promised salvation to the world, it also warned that judgment would come to those who disobey the covenant. So God's purposes go on, and yet individuals are held accountable. And it's the unity of those two ideas, because you say, well, there's a tension there. You're absolutely right. That's why someone challenges that in verse 5, which reads, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And Paul says, look, I'm just reasoning like a human here for a moment. So once again, Paul raises this point that someone might make. Someone might actually make this point. Maybe someone has in Paul's gospel preaching. They're trying to get at the integrity of the gospel. And they're saying, hey, wait a minute. If God uses our evil for good, you know, if despite our evil, God still accomplishes good... How does God justly judge us? I mean, don't the ends justify the means? I mean, look how it ended up. It ended up well. So it doesn't matter what we do. And once again, Paul says, certainly not, verse 6. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now, follow Paul's logic here. He doesn't say, man, that's a good point. You know, that tension, maybe that should make us question the judgment of God. Maybe we need to turn down our certainty about God's judgment. Or maybe we need to turn down our certainty about God's faithfulness. No, Paul says, the judgment of God is so certain that I will live with the tension. God will judge those who fail to keep the terms of the covenant. And God will fulfill 
his saving purposes. He doesn't feel the need to resolve the tension or mute any aspect of the statement. It's just, I know God will judge. That's established. That's the big rock. That's not moving. And so however these things work out, they'll work out. God is faithful to save. God is faithful to judge. And so it is a question we have to ask ourselves in the midst of thinking about God's faithfulness and rejoicing in that. Let us also beware lest we question whether God has the right to judge us. And as this text has shown us, we are all guilty of unfaithfulness towards God. There is only one who is faithful. So are you as faithful as Jesus is? Because if not, then God has the right to judge you. But here's the good news. If you know that you are not faithful, and you find all your faithfulness in Jesus, then you have an absolutely secure standing before God. Which brings us to the fourth statement, which is really just a conclusion. God is faithful to accomplish his gospel purposes. Verses 7 and 8. Someone might argue, well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. And you can see here that these ideas are somewhat similar to what we just saw in verses 5 and 6. Maybe it makes you think of Romans 6 as well. Where someone says, well, hey, if we're sin abounds, grace must more abound. Let's just sin so that grace may increase. No, God forbid, Paul says. But if God is faithful, despite people's unfaithfulness, I mean, doesn't their unfaithfulness enhance God's faithfulness? I mean, they're just giving God more opportunity to show his faithfulness. And, and maybe some people thought that's what Paul was preaching. And once again, Paul doesn't provide a detailed response to the accusation. Rather, here's how one commentator puts it. Paul intends the very absurdity of the objection to imply its dismissal. God is holy. He cannot be tainted by evil. He has the right to judge. And he does no evil in how he runs his world. So if people are unfaithful, God meets unfaithfulness with faithfulness. If people think, oh, well, then that gives me an excuse to do wrong. No, not at all, God says. God will hold you accountable. But in the face of unfaithfulness, God shows faithfulness. Again, it's the story of the Garden of Eden played out over and over again. God makes a world. He puts his creatures in there. He shows love. They spurn his love. How does God respond? With more love. He warns them of judgment, yes, but announces the gospel of grace. And we then are the people to whom God has given us Jesus Christ, the faithful one. And by faith we are connected to him. And we become characterized by love and faithfulness. And what the law couldn't do, God has done in the person of his son. And so therefore, by faith, we have a right standing with God. 
and we live in love. A love that transforms us into faithful people. So let's pray for more of that faithfulness. And let's give thanks to God for the gospel and his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come in the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge that all of our faithfulness is in you. And for that we give thanks. And I pray, I earnestly pray, that we as your people would rest in that. There are times we really need to rest in something outside of ourselves. In the foundation of faithfulness that you've given us in your Son. And I pray we do that. And Father, I pray because we are connected to your Son by the Spirit. That you would make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We adore a Savior who was faithful. And we see those then, God, as virtues we would long to imitate and long to have formed in us. Make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness that we might be filled. And Lord, maybe in our heads we we can hear the the accusation of Romans 6 with so much emphasis on your faithfulness. Maybe then we won't be faithful. We'll just, we'll live in a lawless way. Father, keep us from that error. There's no delight in lawlessness, but neither is the solution for our lawlessness law. Lord, you have met the solution in the gospel of your son. And now we sweetly obey and comply with your law. So my prayer for us as a church, my prayer for us as individuals is you make us more gospel-centered, Because the more gospel-reliant we are, well, then the more holy we will be. And then, God, as you work in us, would you be pleased to spread out into our community? There are people outside these walls that need the good news of Jesus. They need to be delivered from their sin and your wrath and from misery. And I pray that by your grace, you'd take the good news out and you'd bring folks in and we'd see you continuing to work. And we give you our thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.